nature was considered dark and dangerous, right? Think about if the whole world's population was four or 500 million people, there was a lot of nature. And so humans were actively engaged in chopping nature down, burning it, killing the wolves, etc. You couldn't do that much damage. Nature would come back and would win, and most of it was outside of human reach anyway. But with a world of 8 billion people where 96% of the mammals are humans, we've long since overshot where nature can recover from our abuse and our attitude that nature is bad and we have to pave it over. As Charles brilliantly said in that podcast, maybe we can actually build a world that would work that way, but it would be world of concrete and uh, and why would we want to live there? Hey guys, before we get to this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting development at Evolve Move Play. So we are bringing back our two-day traveling workshops. So that means one of our workshops might be coming out to a city near you, or potentially you could reach out to us and bring us to a city near you. We did this for years. I started, when I started Evolve Move Play, I taught traveling workshops all over the world from 2013 to 2019. But after the birth of my youngest daughter, I needed to stay home more with my wife and my three kids. And so we stopped those. But now we have a really amazing staff of teachers who've come up with me through the retreats of the last few years. And I myself have a little bit more freedom to travel. So we've got four upcoming dates here in the States and two dates in Europe coming up where you can come and train with us for just two days. That means it's going to be a lot easier entry point as far as cost and logistics for you to come and join us. So check out what's going on with our two-day workshops in the link down below. And we look forward to seeing you in a city near you soon. Jim, uh, welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. It's, uh, it's great to be speaking with you again. Yeah, uh, enjoy being on here. We had a great uh, uh, conversation on my podcast, and I'm looking forward to what we talk about here today. Sounds good. So for those of you in the audience who might not be familiar, Jim Rutt is a tech entrepreneur, I believe, kind of that's your uh, where you started. Uh, and um, in the last uh, 10 years or so, you've been one of the leading founders of a movement called the Gain B Movement, which is a attempt to build a metastable, stable social economic operating system for a, a different civilization that will avoid some of the problems we're currently facing. Is that a good description of it? Yeah, that's an excellent, very short form description of a rather insanely audacious plan. Yeah, here we go. Um, so I think most of my audience probably won't be familiar with the game B space, right? Like, um, a lot of my audience comes from parkour. Um, and then, um, a lot of it does come from John Verveke and Jordan Peterson and folks like that. So I think a lot of them may be slightly familiar with it, but I think it'd be good to do a pretty good overview of the ideas before we get into more of a, like how to, how do the, how do our ideas interact? So what I wanted to start with is what is game A? Game A, at least in my version, one of the interesting things about Game B is that it is not an ideology. There is not a book that says, this is Game B, and if you vary from this, we will burn you at the stake. Uh, it's an approach. And so there, uh, all the Game B thinkers, and there's many, there's at least 20 who are serious contributors, and more than that who contribute at least a bit, uh, have a different perspective. So I, whenever, whatever I say, this is the Jim Rutt flavor of game B. Uh, I like to say that game A is the world system uh, that started to congeal around 1700 AD. Uh, and it consists of, you know, various things, but some of the principal parts are science. You know, science as we know it was developed a little bit before that. 
uh, in the 17th century, around 1650, 1670, Isaac Newton, uh, Robert Boyle, people like that, finally separated empiricism from metaphysics. Uh, and that was a hugely important uh, step. Second, modern finance uh, started at, at the, around the same time, interestingly, with the uh, uh, Bank of Amsterdam and the Bank of England. Uh, Bank of England in particular, I would say, is the precursor to our modern financial system, and it started in 1694. Uh, democracy, uh, you know, government more under the uh, will of the people, whatever that means, uh, than not. Uh, in England, very important pivotal event, the Glorious Revolution in 1688, where the monarchy became clearly subservient uh, to the parliament. And then the fourth part, uh, which is relatively closely related to the first three, is the Industrial Revolution, uh, where democracy gave people the freedom to innovate uh, modern financial structures, uh, gave them financial uh, uh, ways of doing things. And of course, uh, science, while early uh, the tinkerers and the technologists were ahead of the scientists, uh, over time, the scientists became the the pioneers that led the technologists forward. And so I think those four things together uh, are the bases uh, of our modern world. And so all that sounds good. And indeed, it's important to be right up front and say that game A, uh, for most people, at least uh, most people in the West, but I, I would argue most people in the world, was a good thing. In uh, 1700, the world's population was about 600 million as compared to 8 billion today. 50% uh, of kids died by the time they were five years old. Uh, the uh, Every time a woman had a child, uh, it was about as risky as being an astronaut on the space shuttle. You had about a 2% chance of dying horribly, typically. Uh, you know, most people lived in houses with dirt floors and no window, you know, uh, no windows. Uh, in the northern climates, they were suffering from respiratory failure all winter from their smoky fireplaces, which weren't well designed, et cetera. Anyway, um, game A started rocketing up first slowly then more and more and more and more and more rapidly and then uh, went through a number of inflection points and by about 1875 was roaring and getting even steeper and then and that's really when uh uh we the the fifth big transformation started to occur which is uh we started to be moving from being a mostly rural farming based uh species uh, to more of a manufacturing and urban-based uh, species. And in the West, at least, that inflection point's quite clear around 1870. Uh, and then it keeps roaring ahead, roaring ahead, roaring ahead, until the pivotal event of 1945 when we invent the atomic bomb. All right, finally, uh, Game A, because nobody's directing Game A. It's the other thing to keep in mind. It is just growing itself. It's an emergent, complex system. Uh, in 1945, I think it's a signature event when Game A had developed enough stuff to, if not eliminate the human species, at least completely screw up our uh, advanced uh, civilization. And, and of course, that reached its scariest in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, where the Soviet Union and the United States each had about 20,000 nuclear weapons pointed at, at each other. And had that balloon gone up, Again, I don't think it would have killed every human on Earth, but it would have killed a bunch of them, probably 99.5% of them, either in the direct uh, attributes of the war or the, uh, the the huge famines that would come after uh, come after that with the disruption of the world system. 
And then, but we got by that one, at least it seemed like we did uh, in, by 1990. And then the, the, the computer, internet, uh, and now AI technology curves came added on top of that. So things kept getting steeper and steeper and steeper, uh, again, with no breaks. And so game A, 1700, initially a great thing for humanity, hauled us out of all living in deep poverty, short lives, lots of misery, uh, and was on an exponential growth curve, which it's still on. The problem is it has no brakes. It has no innate ability to slow down. And I would argue, we do argue in the game B world that the financial system in particular is anti-brakes. It has to exponentially grow or it dies for a number of technical reasons. It has to do uh, with the way it's structured. And so when you're 600 million people with with relatively primitive technology. Remember, this is before the steam engine. This is even before things like the the powered loom, water-powered loom for weaving clothes. Six, seven, 1700, we were a remarkably primitive species. Uh, can't do that much harm. But now we have long since uh, reached the level of power uh, where we are at and across the, the, the planetary limits uh, of what the earth uh, can handle. Uh, I think a couple of scary numbers of all the mammals, you know, which we are mammal, humans are, uh, of all the mammals on earth now, the mass, the weight of all the mammals on earth, 96% of it is humans and their domestic animals, mostly cattle. Uh, ca cattle outweigh us, uh, but uh, uh, we outweigh absolutely everything else. The deer, the elephants, the hippopotamuses, the mice, 4%. Birds, it's 80% of the mass is our domestic poultry, mostly chickens, also some turkeys, ducks, and geese, 80%, maybe 85. The, the wild birds are a small fraction of that. And yet we're continuing to roar ahead exponentially. And of course, uh, we were not evolved psychologically to live in this kind of world. We were evolved to live in small groups of 50 to 150 people, adults, uh, more, a bunch of kids tagging along, uh, and to know everybody we dealt with, to have levels of trust based on, uh, you know, g often generations of stories about the people, et cetera, uh, and high levels of re reciprocity. Uh, you know, pe somebody in your group would take care of you, something happened to you, uh, and, and, that's how we live for most of our history. And indeed, most people on earth were living that way up till 1870 or thereabouts, uh, where most of your security came from your local community. Yeah, some take, took care of you, somebody take you in. You go crazy, your aunt would let you live in her attic, right? Uh, you didn't see raving, shit-encrusted people on the sidewalks of major cities in 1870. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but now... Uh, that what we call game B, the mezzo scale, the scale of the personal face-to-face -face community. Uh, Robin Dunbar, a very well-known uh, anthropologist, psychologist, has uh, put forth a series of Dunbar numbers. I did a very interesting podcast, Robin Dunbar. So uh, search Jim Rutcho Dunbar if you're interested. Uh, and the 150 is for him and for a lot of us, a very important number, which is approximately the size of a community where you can mentally keep track of the social relationships, the debits and credits, the, the trust nest, net, et cetera. Uh, and so, uh, so game B theory is that we need to learn how to build a new social operating system that learns to bend that exponential growth curve to a much, much, much slower growth curve and probably actually maybe even move it down for a while. Uh, and then, 
uh, at the same time, increase our human well-being by rebuilding the mesoscale, building uh, communities at the scale of about 150 adults where, where you don't actually need a fancy governance structure, right? Where people can essentially manage themselves if they know how. Uh, and then they build networks of these uh, nodes, essentially. And so we can still do great things. We can still go to space. We can go to the stars. We can build... Uh, you know, particle accelerators, et cetera. But the places that we actually live, where we get our sustenance and our security are based around a way of life that's actually uh, designed for humans uh, in, in a very short form way, uh, especially for, let's say, Americans and Europeans and Australians who are burning way too much energy, consuming way too much material. We can probably reduce our material inputs by a factor of three and we believe we can improve our human well-being by a factor of three uh, compared to a person uh, working a drudge job in the big city, living in a high-rise apartment uh, with, you know, $30,000 worth of credit card debt, uh, you know, with no, no friends or one friend. Uh, we yeah. believe that human well-being can be massively increased at the same time uh, that we're significantly reducing our individual impact on the planet. And that's also important to note that, uh, you know, the people I discussed, you know, Americans, Europeans, Australians, Canadians, et cetera, we are burning uh, 20 times per capita, let's say people in sub-Saharan Africa are, are consuming in terms of energy and material. And the view I have is that over the next hundred years, those two should converge at about the same number. The people uh, in sub-Saharan Africa or Bangladesh, Nepal, uh, can uh, legitimately increase their uh, consumption by at least 10x. Uh, and we can cut our consumption by at least three X and we can meet in the middle. Uh, if, if you want to put it in terms of energy, uh, the numbers I've gotten from people who study this stuff, people very knowledgeable about climate and the te technology of climate is around the equivalent of 4,000 Watts. That, you know, so, uh, one way of measuring the intensity of a society is how much energy does it consume continuously? And um, America is about 11,000 Watts today. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is less than 500, amazingly, 400 about. Uh, if we all converged at 4,000, uh, we could actually make that happen by, uh, you know, 2080 or thereabouts. And to give you a sense of what a 4,000-watt civilization is like, that's essentially Portugal. Uh, you know, and Portugal is not a horrible place at all. It's actually a quite nice, charming place. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and that is without optimization for energy consumption and material consumption. So anyway, uh, that's one, one version of the game B story. The other is that uh, it, there's really two things that need to happen to make this come into reality. Uh, one is, well, let's leave that for later. I've, yeah, I've been, yeah, I've been rattling. It's my time. Yeah, it's you get, you get quite a lot. It's quite a lot. Uh, the, I can talk way up. too much. Right. But, uh, what I'm, so you mentioned, um, you know, already that a lot of the things that you describe as game A are things that most people are going to say, hey, those are those are wonderful things, right? Democracy, you know, uh, free trade, um, uh, sorry, the science, right? So science, democracy, free trade. Well, there was a fourth piece that you mentioned. Uh, modern finance. Oh, yeah. Modern finance. And the industrial revolution. And the industrial revolution. Yeah, that, and they were great things. And, yeah. and they, they, there are elements of them that are still very, you know, very important. And like, so I grew up in the, uh, in the hippie community, right? A lot of u utopians who believe that we need to return to the land, live like indigenous people, um, throw out kind of the entire system of Western thought. And largely, I would say that, that experiment is a failure and did not 
you know, it, I think it's interesting because obviously it had a lot of influence, right? Like the stuff that I grew up eating, you know, at the, at the buying at the co-op, um, you know, is the stuff that you now find at Whole Foods and that you see, you know, yuppies eating. But, um, so there, there were some good ideas there, but as far as a stable system or a system that, you know, created good childcare and parenting and relationships, uh, I can't say a lot that's great about, <laughs> about that experiment. So I, you know, I come from that, I come back and, you know, you start to see that there is, there's a lot to be said for game A. Um, as you said, you know, people are, are, we have antibiotics, we, you know, modern dentistry, but people, you know, say, say they want to go back and live like the indigenous people. I go, take a look what the anthropologists find about how people died of horrible tooth abscesses. Yeah. Uh, you know, things like that. No, so uh, this is one thing that Game B is not, that we sometimes get mistaken for, is hippies, neo-hippies, right? Uh, you know, my culture is the opposite. I am come from redneck cops and Marines and stuff like that. You know, my dad dropped out of high school and he was ninth yeah. in, uh, in, after ninth grade, right? And, uh, and we were definitely not hippies. In fact, we would whip up on hippies. Right? <laughs> uh, so, and I was, and, but there is certainly some hippie tendencies amongst the Game B crowd, but we, uh, you know, respect science. You know, I'm a scientist, right? Amongst other things that I do, uh, I've been involved with the Santa Fe Institute for 20 years and, and, and other places as well. Uh, and so, uh, I think the game B lens is not, in fact, I, I sometimes use as a negative or a pejorative, uh, people who want to live in mud huts, right? I go, what the hell? I don't want to live in no goddamn mud hut. Right. And, uh, I don't want to eat, I don't want to eat kale either. Right. Like, uh, uh, so, uh, you know, give me a nice steak. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the, um, uh, I think game B, uh, thesis is that we can live well, very well, uh, and should live well, uh, and be productive and engaged in the world. Uh, and, uh, but not, uh, just be on this exponential more, 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 more growth curve. You know, yeah. why in the hell does someone need a 40,000 square foot house? Right. It's true. The excesses. It's just gross excesses. Right. Uh, and, or even a 4,000 square foot house, uh, you know, is it's, it's just not necessary. In fact, it's counterproductive. It ends up with the nuclear family living in isolation, looking at their screens and not out in the community with the people working on things together. Uh, you know, one of the things growing up in a, uh, you know, lower middle class, upper working class community, I don't recall anyone ever hiring a plumber. If you had a plumbing problem, uh, you find someone in the neighborhood that sort of half knew what they were doing and we'd all work on it together. And I learned how to, you know, change water lines on sinks and even do, uh, you know, change toilets out, replace the wax rings, et cetera. When I was 10 years old, 11 years old, we all did right. Uh, poor concrete. we you know, would you know, poor driveways for each other. And, and, you know, that kind of, of community is great. And, you know, uh, game a though sucks us away from building the commons of our interpersonal relationships and how we live and encourages us to consume, you know, purchased experiences, uh, with the result that we have unprecedented levels of mental illness, particularly amongst our young people. Yeah. So this is, this is what I've been thinking about for a long time is this idea of the paradox of modern experience, which is that we have a system that's derived miraculously beneficial things. And at the same time, it's kind of driving us crazy. I think of it, uh, what you just spoke to this, the sense of 
skillfulness and um, value distribution that's outside of the capital system to some degree, right? So a couple, yeah, yeah, outside of you know uh, explicit monetization because it actually is a form of capital. It's social capital. Social right? capital, yeah. But and, and so uh, you know, one of the giant mistakes people make is thinking that money is wealth and that financial capital is all of capital. Uh, those are those are both gigantic category errors. Yeah. My my upbringing was very strange in this regard because we were technically under the poverty line. And at the same time, we owned the land that we lived on and we had uh, we had renters. So we had a com big community of people. People came there specifically because they shared values also with my family. And so there was a real sense of coherence. Um, obviously, there's lots of dysfunction as well. But, you know, we would have Thanksgiving dinners with 30 people um, from the community who were coming together to 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 celebrate. Um, and that was deeply meaningful, right? As we all kind of all me and my siblings sort of moved into the game a world um we realized how how unique and valuable it was to be in a place that attracted that kind of community and had that kind of community um i uh so you're from the appalachian region uh correct i actually grew up in the washington dc burbs my dad was a dc cop right okay. uh and uh though i currently live in about the most remote part of Appalachia. Okay. Uh, in fact, our county, uh, 450 square miles, has a population of 2,200. Uh, and so it's, for at least the eastern half of the United States, it's literally the most remote place in the eastern United States. Yeah. So I, um, when I, I had a mentor when I was a kid, and I think I told you about this on, on your podcast, but I went out to visit his family, right? And his family had people who could hunt, people who could fish, people who could grow their own food, people who could put together a house, people who could, you know, who could sing all the old songs, who knew the Bible front to back. And what struck me about that was the sense that they were sort of culturally complete. They were like fully developed individuals in some sense, because they had many ways to donate value to their community. And so I think one of the central points you're pointing to as far as the problem of capitalism is that the market kind of wants to capture every form of value that it's exchanged um, and make it visible as a form of financial capital. So if we, if we all get together and fix each other's toilets and pour each other's concrete, um, yes, there's value because we went and bought the, 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 the wax rings and we bought the concrete from somewhere, but, but the, the labor exchange is outside of the capital. Yeah. Outside of the financial capital. Yeah. It's outside uh, it's, of financial. It's, it's social capital, right? Cause yeah. the people who did yeah. not participate in those exchanges didn't get reciprocity. Yeah. Uh, and so you build your social capital by participating in the commons mm -hmm. and that is every bit as real a kind of, of, of capital as financial capital mm -hmm. and is got far deeper roots in our humanity. Yeah, I've been thinking, I think, a lot about this idea of long-term social capital and how valuable it is a lot because of the family that I come from as well. Because my uh, great-grandfather uh, settled in Skagit County in 1920, and his family, there's got to be over 100 of them, and they are some of the largest landowners in this county, Whatcom County and Skagit County, and they own an engineering firm that works with Boeing. 
So they have enormous network strength, mm -hmm. right? And they're extremely tight knit and they work together to create things. And it's like that being networked into something like that has a type of value that it's, it's not only the financial value, right? It is actually, a, it is actually something that you can leverage for financial growth, but it's also like childcare expecting that if you need to go away and have a date, somebody in your family is going to be happy to take your kids on for an afternoon. And in fact, where I grew up, we had that in the in amazing form. And I often use this as, as a proto example of what game beak looks like, uh, uh in this post-World War II suburb, this was in by mid fifties, 56 or so. A whole bunch of young parents had moved to this brand new subdivision, did not know each other, had come from all over uh, the eastern seaboard. Uh, and uh, within a year, they had formed a babysitting cooperative. Uh, and so when the parents wanted to go out on a date or whatever, uh, you know, there were, you know, 35 mothers who uh, were members of the co-op. My mother kept a ledger because she was the most mathematically astute of the bunch. Uh, and they exchanged babysitting hours on a ledger. And I would say the majority of these women were high school dropouts, right? This was not uh, an educated bunch that figured this out. And it worked great uh, until eventually, until the uh, some of the younger uh, girls grew up to be about, a, about 10 or 11 or 12, and they started becoming the babysitters for 25 cents an hour or whatever hell it was we paid them. But for like 10 years, the... Uh, the emergent self-organized babysitting co-op was adding tremendous value uh, to the community. Uh, and you know, that's a real thing. So even where, where, cause these were all people came from elsewhere, post-World War II, Washington, DC uh, just grew exponentially as the government grew. And so large numbers of people were attracted to it, including both my parents. My mother was from a uh, dirt poor tenant farm uh, family in Northern Minnesota. And my father was from a inner city, urban, uh, Northeast U S, uh, family. Uh, and like many of the other people there, they, they came for the opportunities after world war II, but because they still had social capital, they knew how to work together. Uh, you know, we also built a community swimming pool, uh, that the, the county we were in was growing really fast, didn't have the money for infrastructure. So again, a number of these families got together and uh, built a, a, a corporate, a not-for-profit corporation, uh, lined up about 350 families to pay in a few hundred dollars each. And with that, they built a community swimming pool, uh, which still exists to this day as a private uh, enterprise. Quite amazing. That is amazing. I, I'm struck by the fact that I've lived in, uh, you know, suburban neighborhoods with my family for the last 10 years, right? I have a 10 year old daughter and there's no, there's no communal spirit to any neighborhood that I've lived in. There's no, there's no, there's a, there was just attempts at sort of like block parties in Seattle, but it was very hit or miss. There was no long-term connections that were made out of it that I could tell. And, and you have the sense living in the suburbs that everyone is protective of their atomization. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and that's because the social, I, I would argue at least, the social capital that, we, that say my parents' generation inherited from the 1870s had not entirely attenuated yet. By today, people your age, uh, there's essentially none of it left. Uh, and occasionally you'll run into uh, social entrepreneurs who are actually are good at building these kinds of things in their little little bubbles. Uh, but, there, but if you move into a random suburb, the chance of the mothers coming together to form a babysitting cooperative on their own close to zero. 
uh, or even uh, the fathers uh, working together to uh, build each other driveways. Uh, you just don't see that anymore. Uh, and and uh, the other part of the game B narrative, around 1870, uh the exchange started to be made where uh, we started to gradually, and it didn't really become fully mature until probably 1960, but we started to gradually stop depending on our local network for our security and our sustenance. And we, we traded the local network for two anonymous systems. One is the market and the other is the government. Yeah. Uh, and they, they're, those are transactional, cold, and inhuman, right? And further, as we know, uh, let's say welfare, for instance, one of the problems with welfare is uh, that, you know, uh, people who aren't even trying to help themselves get welfare as well. While in the, uh, you know, the social network that's provided by the community, uh, you know, if you're an antisocial person doing harm to the community, guess what? People aren't going to help you, right? Uh, government is unable to make that distinction. So it just hands out checks to everybody, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, there's no moral context. There's no virtue uh, in government. And of course, there's no virtue in markets. Quite the contrary, right? Uh, if you take markets to their uh, absurdum, say post-1975 capitalism, uh, where uh, capitalism was wrongly interpreted to mean that corporations had a moral obligation to maximize shareholder value above everything else, uh, then of course it has no moral context whatsoever. Uh, and you end up with things like fast food and Coca-Cola and uh, uh, gangster rap and pornography, you know, most vile imaginable pornography being streamed into the heads of 11-year-old boys. I mean, what the hell, right? Uh, in a righteous society, those people should be taken out and hanged, right? But they're not uh, because in advanced stage oh, financialized, right? you know, I, I guess they are. I mean, uh, in, a, in, a decent, in a decent society, they, people take those people out and hang them, anyone who is streaming vile pornography to 11-year-old children. Uh, but because the market is transactional, amoral, and government is transactional, amoral. Uh, we have become a transactional and amoral people. And that's what one of the core things that we have to rebuild if we're going to uh, transition from game A to game B. I'm particularly interested in this this line of, of discussion because for a variety of reasons, but I haven't actually read Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone. I need to actually get that that book read and also uh um the tocqueville's american right america because that's also about how america had this unique capacity for social capital so familiar with the ideas of both to some degree but in de tocqueville he, he chronicles how americans were developing a unique ecology of of civic institutions that created a deeper network of social trust and how that's part of what drove american dynamism um and then in in uh, Robert Putnam's book, he documents how all of those institutions that the Tocqueville talked about have essentially been disappearing. My sense is that there is a there's a kind of capitalism uber alles idea that pushes towards the the the, the marketization of every form of value exchange. Um, I've been reading Mary Harrington recently, and she talks about the war on relationships. Right that that Tinder and OnlyFans and pornography, they're, they're ways of essentially marketizing sexual relationships, which turns out to make everybody miserable, except for a few very successful people. But 
we can't escape the logic of that of that market. We what? can, but we but we don't know how yet. Yeah, we yeah, can't. We haven't been able to. If this is uh, this, uh, I, I mean, this is a good time for me to insert this if you don't yeah. mind. Uh, if I call it the gateway drug to lead you from game A to game B, it is that all the stuff that we have, you know, highly financialized, amoral capitalism, cold and transactional governments, uh, horrible uh, sausage factory school systems, all the things that we have, uh, they are not a given. They did not come down from Mount Sinai with Moses. These are all human creations that were uh, that were created and evolved over time, and we have the power to change them. Uh, we have the agency to invent new institutions, and that we should not accept what we have as a given. And to as long as we accept what we have as a given, uh, then it's very unlikely that we'll be able to uh, make the transition to a better world. So the first thing is all these things we're talking about that we both agree are bad, bad trends. We can do something about it. <laughs> Excellent. Let's let's do that. Let's briefly back up for a second because we never actually described what the central principles of game B are. So we've started to describe, you know, what game A is, why we're seeing trends within game A. We haven't even gotten into the idea that game A is in, in some sense inherently self-terminating. That'd be a good thing to to go over the arguments for. But uh let's first just line out what are the central principles of game a as it's been proposed I mean, game b right game b sorry yeah 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 the uh, uh some of the core principles are one uh that the we have rebuild the meso scale is one of the most important ones and that uh, within the meso scale uh much more should be in the form of the commons rather than personal ownership uh that one of the one of the side effects of um financialized capitalism uh and it started quite early actually after uh, you know, uh the beginning essentially uh it was is the very very heavy focus on individual ownership of capital rather than community ownership of capital uh the most famous example of this with the enclosure movements in england where traditionally uh, rural people in england had large amounts of land that were called the commons that were owned in common by the people and they grazed their uh, their cattle and their sheep there. They got firewood there. They fished in the streams, et cetera. Uh, as part of the movement to force people off the land and into the factories, there were uh, laws passed in parliament allowing the local nobility that owned the land around it to seize the commons and enclose it, right? And ever since then, both hard and soft commons have been being reduced until today. We think of our wealth as the wealth within our uh, electronic ledgers and inside the four walls of our house, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when in reality, uh, all that, much of that uh, wealth could could be held by the community of 100, 150 people uh, and could be, and could be worked with together. So moving uh, capital from individual lex nexus to small scale collective nexus, uh, but not necessarily in total, but in a substantial degree is an important part. Uh, also worth noting, we do not agree with socialism, for instance, you know, state ownership of the means of production. Yeah. Uh, that has turned out to be even a worse nightmare than financialized capitalism. Yeah. So we are not socialists. We are not capitalists. We are something new. Uh, second, uh, the, uh, the doctrine of measuring everything in terms of money has to stop. That is what will lead us to the self-termination state. And in fact, will, if we don't uh, make a willful change, you know, uh, that if you don't value 
the fact that your 11-year-old son is not exposed to triple penetration pornography, if, you don't th if there's no way that that's valued in the calculus of how people behave, then, of course, people will provide them with triple penetration pornography. Uh, uh, you know, if a endangered, or, uh, let's say, let's say not even an endangered species, but a, a fish species that is being overfished, uh, let's say uh, the striped bass of the Chesapeake Bay, which is near where I lived, where I grew up, and it's a wonderful eating fish. Uh, but if you just fish that willy-nilly, it'll be fished to extinction, and, and it almost was. They had to close the fishery for five years to give it a chance to recover. Uh, but if you went more, uh, uh, more boldly and imagine that these species have their own advocates, and uh, let's say there's a, a coin or a currency for uh, striped bass and that uh, the best thinkers have determined that there could be uh, 50 million pounds of striped bass harvested a year and leaving the uh, fishery in good shape. And so 50, uh, 50 million uh, coins for a pound of striped bass uh, could be issued to everybody within 100 miles of uh, the estuaries where they, they live. Uh, some people aren't going to want like striped bass, so they could have an automated trading agent that traded those uh, coins for things that they are interested in. And people further inland who aren't really part of that estuary system, they could buy these coins from uh, uh, from the folks. And you, uh, you know, the, the rules that we would all agree to is that you cannot consume uh, striped bass unless you have striped bass coins, right? Uh, as uh, you know, as an example of multiple modalities of signaling and representing value, not just one. Uh, you know, the, uh, the that is one of the great sins of uh, of game B is co is is collapsing all value to just money. Absolutely. And, and uh, okay, one second, Jim. Yeah, looks like you're having video problems there. Jim, you were just going over the idea of. Coins for fish. Um, yes. Which was a, a wonderful idea. And uh, I was a little distracted because my camera had turned off. So um, I, maybe I can just step back for a second because when you talked about the commons, right? Like one of the classic, you know, economic theories is the tragedy of the commons that when we have a commons, then no one individual is incentivized to make sure that it's well taken care of. And that, you know, essentially, uh, I think it's hard to, um, there's a potential problem with policing defaults in usage, right? So if everyone has access to the fish, who's going to make sure that the fish don't get overfished? Now, I'm curious to hear you talk about, you know, if we look back at these older systems, how did they stabilize against the, the treasury of the commons? And what is the reciprocal tragedy of individuation, right? Um, because it seems to me that that what you're pointing out is, there, there are game theory problems maybe with a common setup, but there's also game theory problems with what happened after enclosure. And we need a system that actually recognizes and balances both. So can you tell me what, what you see as the game theory problems of, of both systems and what are the appropriate um, responses? Well, this is very interesting because, unfortunately, this uh, Garrett Hardin, who's the, uh, the the scientist, social scientist, came up with the idea of uh, tragedy of the commons. Uh, it unfortunately was wrong. 
Uh, now there are simple game theory models for which uh, he was correct, right? Which you know the the the, the simple his simple-minded example is we have a a pasture. Everybody has the incentive to overgraze to put more cattle on that pasture because if they don't, their neighbor will, and so the end result is the pasture is degraded and destroyed, and all the grass dies, and nobody has anything. So that's Garrett Hardin's theory. Uh, the the person you should read as the antidote to that is Eleanor Ostrom. Ostrom who won a Nobel Prize in economics for how commons are actually managed. And in reality, uh, let's say it's a a game B Dunbar number-ish community of 150 people, which by the way, and this is where Dunbar got his number, that's the size of a traditional agricultural community in, in, uh, in, in England uh, for a very long period of time. Uh, those folks have a very complex set of webs of mutual obligations, intermarriage, reciprocity, et cetera. And the uh, the commons are managed the same way. Uh, the people who have cattle all get together and say, all right, how many cattle will this pasture handle this year based on weather conditions, uh, you know, the luck of invasive weeds, et cetera. And it's like, oh, well, hey, we can handle 35 uh, cattle this year. And they then together collectively, but informally and with no uh, government help, uh, figure out how many cattle and who gets how many, uh, and they reach a social consensus on how to manage uh, the uh, the uh, you know the cattle. And if there's rule breakers, which uh, from time to time there will be, uh, I can give you a very interesting example in Maine. Uh, we we're up in uh, on Deer Isle in Maine, uh, where there's a uh, it's the center of the uh, lobster fishery in the Gulf of Maine. And it's very tightly managed uh, in co cooperation between the lobstermen and the uh, state and it and, and biologists. And it has really worked well in maintaining a stable lobster population. And of course, there are always rogues who will overfish, steal other people's traps, et cetera. So what happens? Well, guess what? Their boats sink at night, essentially. <laughs> that's what happens. And that's what they said. They're very upfront about that. We asked them that question. Oh, yeah, yeah, those people, their boats have accidents, spring leaks, right? <laughs> and they sink. Uh, so at some point, if you're in a community, and it's one of the things that the uh, jurisprudence of uh, Game B uh, has identified is that almost all you need in terms of uh, a judiciary and police power at a community of 150 is the ability to expel. So if a person is repeatedly uh, over putting more graze, uh, grazing more cattle than we have all agreed is the right number, uh, and after being counseled and having some psychological help, if they have to have psychological issues to lead them to this, if they still repeat this uh, behavior, you throw them the hell out. And so you defend the commons. You have to defend. If you're not willing to defend the commons, then the tragedy of the commons will occur. So uh, th that is, uh, that, that's absolutely critical. Um, now, well, let's get to the other side, the individualization, the radical market. Now, it does turn out that people like Adam Smith were right, uh, that if you let the absolute most efficient uh, cattlemen have all the commons, he will raise a few more cattle than the community would together. Uh, Hyper-individualism, uh, rigorous markets are a bit more efficient uh, than social uh, cohesion uh, helping. Because again, in this one, the person that's a better cattleman, who has a better grade of cattle, who's more diligent at the work, uh, has to share some of the capacity in the commons with people who are less so, right? So it's not winner take all. 
and so the total production of cattle from the community will be somewhat less. Not a lot, but somewhat. Uh, the problem with the radical market is even small benefits, small gaps in productivity lead to winner-take-all, uh, winner-take-all dynamics. This is a, a fundamental nature of highly financialized markets. I mean, think about it. If there was two bottles of ketchup and one was 5% more expensive than the other, which one would you buy? If they're otherwise more or less identical, you buy the one that's 5% less. So the one that's 5% less is created with slave labor. Uh, the other one is created by hippies in, uh, in, uh, uh, uh organic, uh, clothing. Uh, and, uh, the, the one created by slave slave labor will get all the market because it's 5% less. Uh, and so that is, uh, that is where, uh, uh, determining everything at the rigorous, one dimension of money uh, leads you to the wrong place, leads you to slave labor, quite literally, right? Why do we buy stuff made in China, made by slave labor or, or the equivalent of it? Uh, because we don't have that other dimension, which says that we have to consider, uh, be omniconcerned of all aspects of all our decisions. Uh, uh, and I, that's absolutely critical. So, yeah, But we must be honest and say that it will be, at least in the short term, a uh, little bit less uh, efficient but we would argue that in the long term, it may actually be better because the people who are managing these commons have a long-term vested interest in maintaining the quality of the land and not degrading it, even if they're not going to make quite as much return in the short term. You know, a person running an intense uh, CAFO, uh, you know, uh, concentrated animal feed operation uh, uh, in the Midwest, hey, oh, well, they run it for three years, land's totally shot the shit. They sell the land for somebody to put some chicken houses on. They go do it somewhere else, right? Uh, unlike people who are grounded in a community who have a multi-generational relationship with the land and taking care of the land, taking care of the nature that's part of the land, taking care of the soils, et cetera. Yeah. The, uh, you know, when you do, when you do uh, uh, reduce it all to money, any behavior that makes money is justified, even if it destroys the land. And yeah, th this kind of externality and, and also the, I think it's like an inefficient capture of what the actual benefits are. So when you have, when you have say a community of, of, uh, of 150, where maybe 30 people are, are running cattle and you reduce it to one person running cattle, um, you can have more efficiency in, in, in the cattle, but you've also reduced the, you've reduced the resiliency of the system by having fewer people who understand cattle rearing and you've reduced the, the, the actual human capital of being able to deal with, with cattle, right? Because if you have 20 people, all those people need to have some level of skill. And, and so what I've thought a lot about is how, like, we, we have a self-esteem problem, right? People don't have self-esteem so we think if we just tell them you know love yourself as you are and this is going to work and what we seem to have created is just narcissistic people <laughs> yeah I, I like to say the old advice be uh, be your real self well suppose you're an asshole or a serial <laughs> killer right you know you probably don't want to actually want them to be themselves right? well also i think that that the idea that you have some inherent authentic self that is uh that is totally internal is another illusion yeah. this individualist mindset like yeah, uh, that's a, that's a very important point yeah that and and i think that's a very bad attractor for people that there's somehow an inherent self that is this wonderful thing when in reality yourself is nothing but the compounding of all your experiences right uh your skills the, your knowledge your network 
there's some genetic aspects that have to do with your personality, temperament, how you deal with stress, some other things, but that's just a container for the things that were put into it. And if you, if you weren't raised with good virtues and values, for instance, uh, then you don't have that aspect of your personhood. If you haven't, if you don't have some skills, uh, if you're just a skillless person, uh, of which there's more and more in the world, as you know, right. Uh, then, you know, why should you frankly have a whole lot of self-respect? Uh, you know, let you should build uh, a, a, the contents of your container such that it is respectable. Well, I think we we need to build selves worth esteeming. That's the frame that I've been using for a long yeah. time. I go back. See, that's better. That's a, yeah. that's what I was getting at. A wonderful term. Selves worth esteeming. I love that. Yeah. So the self worth esteeming to me is a self that is skillful. And that has the ability to donate to a community. And I think that people really, really are just deeply deluded about the idea that the self is is fully self-contained, right? I like I'm I'm six foot one, I weigh 220 pounds. I walk around through the world. I don't really recognize just how huge I am compared to most people until like I see a picture of me. But other people are reflecting back their perception of me all the time. And so I'm anchored into the reality of what I am in a social milieu of other people by what's reflected back to me. So my identity is always in a fluid social negotiation with the people around me. As I age, the the perception that people have of me is going to change. And if I don't update my self-image to that, then that's going to create a disjunction with other people. So uh, we need to do that. And, and we need to, I think that um, the, the idea I was pointing to back in the comments is that you actually have more people who feel like they're valuable contributors and actually can be valuable contributors around, along the dimension of cattle rearing in a community that has a commons. And so you have, um, you have a richer ecology in some sense of skillfulness and capacity within that community. And um, I was really struck by an argument that James C. Scott makes in Seeing Like a State. Like a State. And that's an indispensable book. Anybody interested in this stuff, go read that book. Yeah. So if you, if you want to capitalize, if you want the cleanest capitalization of a, of a forest landscape, you want rows of Doug fir trees. Right. And that's that's going to be like, you know, exactly what that timber is worth. You can control how the timber grows so you don't have too many, um, you know, uh, what's that? And even more and more importantly, the bank can know what it's worth. Exactly. Uh, the bank, knows what's the bank will give you a bigger loan on a, a highly standardized tree farm than they will for a diversified forest. Yeah. And so then there's no, but the number of birds that are going to be in that forest, the number of amphibians, the numbers of uh, bugs diversity of plant species, all of it is going to be vastly lower. And if there's a commons, right, now you want a variety of tree species. People, people are going in there and getting getting mushrooms, right? They're getting, you know, there's a, there's a sustainable rate of harvest of, of bird eggs, of honey, of fruits, of various things. Deer, you know. Deer, um, rabbits, pheasants, whatever it is there's sustainable rates of harvest of a huge set of resources that are available in a traditional forest that actually are destroyed when you capitalize that forest and you marketize that forest. But and, then, and then let me add one other one that's hugely important. Uh, and this is 
the part we haven't yet talked about, the social change, the personal change part. Uh, to the degree that we hold our relationship with nature as sacred and above commoditization, uh, that also change should change our behavior, even if we're not producing more deer and more rabbits and more mushrooms. But we have this sense that the inherent complexity of nature, uh, a nature of rich networkness is in itself a very high value. Uh, we will live very, very differently than if we, uh, even if we even if we think about these as, uh, ecosystem services, rabbits and deer and mushrooms yeah. and things. And so I, 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 I'm along with both parts of that, actually. But I do think that something even bigger happens when we make the change and realize that being embedded in a rich, natural uh, network, self-sustaining of which we're a part of, we are a custodian of, to some degree, is just a fundamentally better way to be. Yeah. Um, I, I listened to your uh, interview with Charles Eisenstein. Exactly. We hit hit right on that and that one. Yeah, it's a beautiful interview, and and it, it it's um it, it's kind of core to a lot of the stuff. You know, my dad. You know, as a as a hippie guy, there's a lot of things that I I protest about him, um, but there's also so many things that I appreciate. And the land that that he inherited was a was a cattle farm, and just straight pastures, and he planted tons of uh, fruiting trees and tons of uh, flowering plants on it, and then he set up with a series of ponds that has trout in it. And the level of bird life that you experience when you're there is just through the roof because it's, it's, it is, it's a, it's not a complete permaculture setup, but it's getting to a lot of those ideas of permaculture and starting to actually produce environments that, that produce more nature. And so in my model, as I, de I describe, right, we have these fundamental connections with the world. We have the world inside our skin. We have the world that we move through, the world that we can manipulate and use as tools, the world of other interactive agents, and the world of the transcendent. And the quality of connection across those is what determines our meaning in life. And a huge part of that, I mean, in some sense, all of that is contained within this nature thing, right? But we, well, yeah, it's a big, it's, it is the necessary container, right? We yeah. no, There are other parts too that are out somewhat outside of it, but they have to be, uh, to, to be long-term sustainable within planetary boundaries. But I would also say within psychologically balanced boundaries, we have to start with nature, right? Nature, uh, you know, nature is sacred. We cannot just be stomping on nature. Uh, and uh, this tendency to stomp on nature goes far, far farther back than 1700. It essentially goes back to the original development of agriculture, perhaps nine or 10,000 years ago. Uh, and if you know, and even in the Middle Ages, long before Game A, uh, and in the Dark Ages, uh, nature was considered dark and dangerous, right? That uh, uh, basically, think about if the whole world's population was four or 500 million people, there was a lot of nature. And so humans were actively engaged in chopping nature down, burning it, killing the wolves, et cetera. Uh, and in, with 400 million humans, uh, it's a year 1000. Uh, you couldn't do that much damage. Nature would come back and would win, and most of it was outside of human reach anyway. But with a world of 8 billion people where 96% of the mammals are humans, we've long since overshot uh, where nature could re recover from our abuse and our attitude that nature is bad. We have to pave it over. As Charles brilliantly said uh, in that podcast, maybe we can actually build a world that would, that would work that way, but it would be a world of concrete and shit. Uh, and why would we want to live there? Absolutely. 
My dad said something to me, which really struck me once. He said that he wanted to create more habitat with every house that he built than he destroyed. So my dad built living roofs on top of his houses, right? Beautiful. And, and that was like, I don't know how effective he's as at actually realizing that goal, but that's the type of world that I want to live in, right? Yeah. I don't want to live in, you know, brutalist, uh, brutalist urban conglomerations. I want to live in a place where people have an active relationship with the land, where the, 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 the houses are built to be more in tune with the land, to be made of stronger things from the land that can be sustainably harvested and that we can then support more, uh, more production. Now, I, I think it's interesting because like Jordan Peterson's one of my big influences and I think his book maps of meaning is, is great. And one of the things he's on about right now is that the, the, you know, environmental uh, standard stuff is, is being used in a very abusive way and that climate change is maybe not what we thought it was. And, I think he's making some good points there, but he's really going in the super anti-environmentalist direction that I'm really not happy about. Um, because I think even if climate change is not an existential threat, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that destroying the Amazon rainforest is not still something we need to be deeply concerned about. There is, and in his model, he talks about the idea that, that we, that, uh, right. There is the sacred culture, right? Father culture, mother nature. Like that's the fundamental archetypal archi uh, architecture. And if you miss either one, then your 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 kind of religious subsystem is not properly aligned. And so we, you know, the frontier American thing became nature just as as the negative, right? Not the, the positive. The enemy, right? To cut it down, chop yeah. it up, chop it up. Um, you know. When I was growing up here in in uh, Washington State, you know, you used to see signs that said, "I, I wipe my my butt with spotted owls." Exactly. Uh, the I, as I said, I live in the most remote county in the eastern United States, and uh, uh, he's passed away now. But this wonderful fellow who ran uh, the most successful farm in the county, great guy, a real naturalist, uh, in addition to being a farmer. Uh, so when he was a kid, which would have been in the '30s. Uh, there were no deer in the county. Mm -hmm. uh, they'd been totally wiped out. He never saw one. So right? he said he never saw a deer until he was 20 years old when they, uh, the Virginia uh, Game Commission got smart and started putting in limits on hunting and imported some deer from Pennsylvania and what have you. And now places overrun with them. They're like rats with hooves, right? Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, let's where we're in. Um, so we're talking about the idea of 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 nature as sacred and how we need it. Need to. Yeah. And it's, let me repeat what I, what I said, which I think is important, is that this amazingly generative, complex network of, of a, a life ecosystem is, as far as we know, unique in the universe. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I'm very fascinated with the question, so-called Fermi paradox question is, is there other different life in the universe? And the answer is we do not know. And if you study it deeply enough, uh, you come to realize that there might not be. It could be that that it's common. It could be that it's very, very rare. Or it could be that it's non-existent. And until we know, we have a gigantic moral burden, it seems to me, to protect our ecosystems as uh, a fount of ratcheting complexity like nothing else uh, that's so very different than other forms of matter in our universe and that and in that you know 
that above all, you know, even at a very pragmatic level, uh, kind of bounds the risks that we should be willing to take uh, as we move forward as a civilization. And, we're, and those thoughts are just not really in our heads. You know, some of the things that are being done in terms of uh, gain of function research, you know, probably led to the COVID crisis, for instance. Fucking crazy. Uh, certain areas of nanotechnology uh, we should be staying away from. Uh, now, this doesn't put life at risk, but it may put human civilization at risk. Uh, this gigantic experiment in uh, mixing everybody up on algorithmically controlled platforms of hypnotism like TikTok or Facebook uh, is an experiment in our uh, attentional ecosystem, which we have no idea what the result is. Uh, all these things seem like very risky things to do. Uh, and we need to you know, take a essentially a fundamentally... Uh, preserving or even might want to call it conservative stance at preserving the richness that we have and moving and not to say we shouldn't move forward, uh, but that we should move forward, keeping in mind the absolute necessity of uh, preserving, uh, you know, what has taken three and a half billion years to evolve. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think there's a, there's a trend within our culture that I'm particularly worried about of what I call the escape eschatology. This, this is the idea that the, the, the telos of humanity is to escape to the stars or to escape into the digital world. And I think that this is, um, this is fundamentally deeply mistaken. I think even if there is, and I, I suspect there probably is complex life on other planets, I don't think that actually will have that much impact on human lives. Because I think that human beings are so deeply attuned to earth that we we can't actually inhabit anywhere else without completely changing ourselves such to the degree that we are aliens right the more that you study kind of how much just the alienness of the current urban environment is disrupting human psychology and human biology like the idea that we're going to to somehow thrive on Mars seems utterly preposterous to me, right? Like one of the big things that I've done for my health in the last couple of years is I've started wake. Uh, I've started going out and getting five to ten minutes of direct sunlight every morning. That's had an immense impact on my sleep because our whole biological system, our hormone systems, are all set up based on light exposure. So luteinizing hormone which is the beginning of your sex hormone cascade that that is triggered production is triggered when your eyes are exposed to light right your circadian rhythm is triggered when your eyes are exposed to light so there's a specific spectrum of light that you experience in the morning if you're on mars you don't experience the same spectrum of light sunset on mars is blue so that's you know you're going to have to re-engineer the pigment response in the eye to light in order to get someone who can and who knows and right like pigment systems like melanin have all sorts of impacts deep into the brain right they're all there's pleiotropic effects of all these things gravity right can a can a human female gestate a baby in 30 percent gravity and we don't know that the physics will ever allow us to travel to planets outside of our solar system so I hear people say sometimes, you know, we need to colonize Mars to solve the overpopulation problem. Oh, that's total bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> the most you know, the, uh, thing I've ever heard. The energy yeah, that, people to Mars yeah. is so high 
You know, I think this is a dream of a, of a aristocratic class. And I asked myself, how many billions of dollars are going into like SpaceX? What would they do if we thought about, we actually need to terraform earth from our own impacts, right? The Amazon, Sahara, how much, how much land have we destroyed that actually has the potential to support far more life than we currently Right. The Sahara used to be green. I mean, that's most yeah. climate change. But most of the Middle like if you look at the bioproductivity of of the the cradle of civilization, Anatolia and Mesopotamia, like we have degraded that massively. That's because we've been farming there longer than anywhere else, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah, that used to be the so called fertile crescent. Now it's mostly desert. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh, the famous cedars of Lebanon. Well, go find me a cedar of Lebanon, would you please, right? There are a few left, not many. Uh, absolutely. Well, I got to say, maybe it's just my old science fiction ladness, uh, but I do think it is the destiny of humanity to bring universe to the, uh, the, the universe to life. And, but uh, to your point, probably not in the form of these bodies, right? Uh, that uh, There are many, many, many uh areas where we are not adapted for uh space fight and in particularly uh not on uh colonizing mars actually had on daniel suarez who's a very good science fiction writer very recently on my podcast and he lays out in two very cool books uh lays out well the first of which is called delta v i forget off the top of my head what the second one is but start with that one delta v he makes uh it brings out state-of-the-art research on why colonizing mars is probably never going to work and he focuses on uh the chemical nature of the surface of mars which is extremely harsh some mm-hmm. of the chemicals produced by the, the sun light hitting those minerals without any a major amount of water produces some very uh, toxic and dangerous materials. But also, he also focuses, like you did, on gravity, right? Mm -hmm. And so he proposes orbiting space stations that uh, spin and provide artificial gravity. Uh, But I think we all know that for long term, to go to Alpha Centauri and beyond, uh, it won't be anything like our bodies. You know, it will be some descendant, downstream descendant of us. And I do think that's part of our destiny, but I I don't think it's uh, something that's going to become real in other than an early exploratory way anytime soon. It's a like a 10,000 year uh, mission for humanity. And I don't want to give up that, you know, become, that's one of the reasons I resist hippies in mud huts, right? <laughs> even, even hippies in mud huts with modern dem- dentistry, right? Uh, is that they're not going to make it to the stars. And uh, I still think that's important. That's the Jim Rutt uh, in, uh, perspective. Uh, and making it to the stars. I just think that we need to prioritize the the fundamental issues that we have here on earth far, far higher and, and, and realize that that's a, it's not a utopia, right? It's sort of like at best, it's a gift that we can give to the stars because it won't affect the impact, the human life here on earth very much at all. I agree. Well, it may in knowledge, but not in material things. We're not going to be trading with Alpha Centauri or uh, uh, or anything. You know, and of course, that's the closest star. Just the physics of that, unless there's some magical teleportation technology, which seems unlikely. Uh, and and uh, that we may trade with the asteroids. This is again what Daniel Suarez's perspective is: is that uh, because of the way uh, the, the math of gravitation, it's actually possible to trade with the asteroids, particularly uh, in a system of the asteroids, the moon and earth and near earth orbit. And, you know, he may be getting ahead of himself a little bit, but I can see the math. I mean, he's very, very mathy. He actually works it out. 
That's why the book is called Delta V, uh, which has to do with the amount of energy necessary to move between orbits and such. Uh, but but we're never, you know, the idea that, yeah, Elon Musk and uh, 100 million people are going to move to Mars in our lifetime ain't never going to happen, right? And, and it's a fool's, uh, a fool's thought. And first and foremost, we have to preserve our Earth. Though, of course, uh, all of space travel is, let's see, what's the NASA budget? And of course, NASA budgets, most, a lot of it's not... Uh, Space travel, NASA budget, uh, what was it, maybe $40 billion a year? $27 billion. It's nothing, right? It's the cost, less than the cost of one carrier battle group. Uh, it's other wastes that are that are much more important. Uh, you know, think of the uh, Iran, Iraq and uh, Afghanistan wars between them, uh, $2.5 trillion, right? Uh, for $2.5 trillion, we could basically solve the climate change problem, or at least make very good, pro almost be done, not quite, maybe it's 5 to $10 trillion. But we could, uh, you know, build a renewable energy infrastructure for everybody on Earth. Uh, and uh, instead, we do stupid-ass shit like fight wars over stupid-ass stuff like Sunni versus Shia uh, or Muslim versus Christian. Who gives a shit about these fairy stories from the past, right? Uh, if we could mature as a civilization and learn to live on our planet in a mature fashion, we got plenty of resources. Think how much money is going into this idiotic Ukraine war. The U.S. has already put in more money into the Ukraine war than we spent in a year in on NASA. Uh, the Russians probably a lot more than that. Uh, and about stupid ass stuff. Should somebody kiss Putin's ass? Now, I strongly agree. We should support the Ukrainians. But to be getting to a point where a uh, sociopath like Putin is able to lead a country is a just a sign that our whole governance modality has broken down in a very, very major way and why game A civilization uh, it has to change. I mean, Putin is an exemplar of game A, uh, the game A system, uh, you know, uh, uh, basically a mafia democratic part, but, um, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, not, well, there's, you know, nominally democratic. And again, in the same way that the, the British uh, parliamentary system of 1688 was only nominally democratic, it had to be a property owner and a may, and male and white and all those things. Right. So, uh, um, uh, you know, if we can fix the idiocy of war, the, you know, of all the things that humans have fallen into, war has got to be the most idiotic at this point. I understand why it made sense in the day, but it no longer makes sense. It's the, you know, it's, it, you know, game A got way too powerful. 1945, war should have just been declared over. Anyone that makes any preparations should, for war should be, uh, you know, sent to Mars or something. Uh, we just can't tolerate this anymore. And if we did not waste so much resource on uh, on war and be preparedness for war, we're all caught in the game theory trap. We can't stop. This is the famous game B multipolar trap that was laid out by Daniel Schmachtenberger. Uh, U.S. can't back away until China and Russia back away. They can't back away until India and Poland back away, right? And so there's this coordination problem. And this and this is, and I will say, Game B does not have the answer for this, but we have focused laser-like on this problem of multipolar traps where it'd be in everybody's interest. Nobody has the interest spending money on military. Of, of the greater waste, there is none, right? And yet we're all caught in the fact that we we can't trust our neighbor, so we have to, right? And, and, we're, and then a bad actor comes and, t and gets control of a country like, 
uh, Russia and puts these weapons to work. And then it really causes everybody to have to double down on their weaponry. And so solving that problem, reaching not just peace, but deep peace, where war is literally unthinkable, has got to be part of the transformation from game A to game B. Yeah, that I agree. I think that's a, a difficult thing. I think the game theory incentives behind war um, and the the sort of axiomatic philosophical religious underpinnings that people fight about are, are harder to extricate than we might realize. But I do think that, you know, the best thing, you know, this is where my work ends up focused on the individual. I was listening to you talk with uh, you and Jordan Hall were on Denizen and talking about the the reciprocal balance between scaling up the virtue of individuals and scaling up the functionality of institutions. They have to hugely important. Yeah. have to do it together. And this has been many of the mistakes of history. You know, let's take the horror shows of uh, uh, Nazism or Stalinism or Pol Pot. You know, we're going to make a new man in one generation, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, the only way you're going to do that is uh, at gunpoint and with lots of executions. Uh, and it's going to end up as a shit show every time. Uh, you know, the Game B world, we believe, is not going to happen in one generation. And it, and the two, and it can't happen by fiat. We have to be a gradual spiraling co-evolution of increased human capacity and institutions that do two things. One, that stabilize those new human capacities and help pull the people to the next level of capacity. So that's why I call it a kind of a, a spiraling ramp that goes around. Uh, you know, a very homey little example. You know, my uh, 35-year-old daughter's got a, uh, we have a two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter. And my daughter, who is quite wise, uh, understands that cell phones with, for young people are worse than cigarettes. Yeah. Uh, but then she asked herself, what happens when my nine, when her then nine-year-old daughter uh, best friend shows up with a cell phone. Uh, can your child be cut off from the social networks of her friends? Uh, you know, at what cost, right? Uh, if you were living in a game B community where everybody agreed that giving cell phones to nine-year-olds is worse than giving them cigarettes, it's easy. There's no stress because all their friends yeah. don't have cell phones. And so there's an example of where culture and institutions, let's say a formal ban on cell phones to children, uh, co-evolve together. We have the insight that they're bad and we have the institutional structure that we aren't going to allow it. Uh, hell, we might even have a jammer that doesn't let cell phones work, except in very narrow areas of the property. Uh, and, uh, and so there's an example of, of uh, human capacity, the understanding of, of attention hijacking and the ability to uh, a desire, desire to modulate our attentional focus and some institutional structures, in this case, uh, probably norms and values uh, that stabilize uh, those insights, make it easier to live that way. It's going to be, it's the only way to get out of this. You know, the, the utopian rupturing revolutionaries, that has never worked. Uh, it's all, well, it's worked temporarily, but it produces horrifying shit shows, uh, a longer journey of, uh, of human and institutional co-evolution. Uh, the game B view is, uh, that's, that's what we have to do. So I think about this problem of, uh, the hockey stick, right? One of the core set of ideas that I've been thinking about for a long time, but I think it was really particularly well as illustrated by um, by Joseph Henrik is that human culture 
is adaptive and it's adaptive to a set of circumstances. When the circumstances change, some of that adaptivity is lost, but we're not actually very good at reasoning our way to good solutions in the solution space. So we have to understand and try to understand and respect what came down traditionally, but also recognize that those traditions are, um, are relevant to a context that's more and more rapidly being displaced. So we have this problem of updating, right? So, you know, the printing press drenches Europe in blood for a hundred years. And now we're going from the internet to the smartphone to AI in 30 years. Yeah, it was more than 200 years, almost 200 years that it drenched the uh, Europe in blood, yeah. culminating about, uh, what, 1630 or 40 with the uh, the 30 years war. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, these changes will always, uh, uh, you know, well, well, not necessarily always have to lead to war, but will cause uh, major disruptions. Uh, you know, you know, it is very important. And again, this is, I think, where Game B differs from many other approaches is that we understand that there are things to learn from the past. But the present is very different from the past. And the solutions that were relevant in the past would not be relevant today. You know, the U.S. Constitution, as much as I've always reverted, was designed in a world where it took uh, two weeks to ride a horse from Boston to Washington for Congress to meet. Uh, and where uh, the biggest newspaper had a circulation of uh, 5,000 people. Uh, and compare that to, you know, Fox News and MSNBC, it's, uh, seven by twenty-four, all horse shit all the time, right? Uh, you know, plus uh, the bubble changers of the internet. Uh, you know, we are kind of caught in a trap that our institutions aren't evolving to the context of our reality. Look at this ridiculous shit show that's going on with the debt crisis. I mean, that is just—they should fire the both team, team blue, team red. Fire them both. That's so we can fire both those teams. The happier I am. <laughs> like, oh, oh my God. This is the worst shit show imaginable. How could anybody take seriously a politics like that? It's like ridiculous. Uh, and, 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 but so we have to be prepared to, it's a very interesting balance, right? Which is if we look at the history of utopians, <laughs> they always produce this utopia. Yet if we look at civilizations that become paralyzed by worshiping of past forms, look at the Roman Empire. It just got so creaky and crazy and eventually collapsed. Uh, we can't be either. And and, and, and this is a really... Man. Yeah. Man, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, and then this is also key too, that we can't reason our way there. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've spent 20 years affiliated with the Santa Fe Institute, the home of complexity science. And I've learned many, many, many things from the super smart people there. Uh, but probably the one of the biggest is uh, epistemic humility, that the ability to predict the unfolding of a complex system like a civilization is quite limited. Uh, if you think you can say that if uh, you do these following 30 things, this is what society will look like in 50 years, you're fooling yourself in a very dangerous way. Absolutely. On the other on the other hand, to have no theory at all uh, essentially means nihilism, right? And, and uh, we're mighty close to that now. So uh, what Game B proposes is what I call, at least, the theory-practice-theory loop, where you have some theories that predict that doing X is a good thing. You do X. And guess what? It probably isn't as good a thing as you thought it was. Uh, and But 
and has some flaws in it. So you fix those in the next loop. But it also, because you moved a bit, you could see things you couldn't see at all. Now, this is something that always happened in my businesses. We had a business plan. We started doing it. We did some things good, some things bad. But then we got to a new position in the landscape where we could see what we couldn't see before. And we said, oh, the real opportunity is over here. And we just, yeah. you know, uh, changed directions a few degrees uh, and and did that. And so theory, practice, theory, loop. Don't believe your own bullshit more than for, you know, three or four years. Uh, have some sense of what Pike's Peak looks like out in the, de- in the distance. And you're generally he- heading there. But realize you're going to be have to be empirical, opportunistic, revisionist, and not in love with your prescriptions if you're going to make it. Uh, you know, a very few, two postulates, a society that lives within planetary boundaries and increases human well-being. Steer towards that star, those stars, and uh, but realize that we don't know how to get there, but we could probably figure it out with a mixture of theory and practice in a rapid learning loop. I know you have to go. Um, this was a super fun conversation. I feel like we've turned over so many stones that I'd like to go deeper on. The biggest one I think is really about getting those tight loops at the community level and the interpersonal, uh, like the, the, the personal level of how you scale up your virtue, how you create a community where you're scaling virtue together and how that, how that scales. Uh, I think that's where the key lever piece is right now. Um, so I'd love to maybe talk about that again in the future for folks who are interested in your work, jimrutshow.com, uh, anywhere else that they should be paying attention to you. You got some blogs. Yeah, you can check out gamebee.wiki. That's got some good information. It's kind of old at this point. Uh, the better place to go is to our online community, which has about 3000 members, uh, uh www.game-b.org. And they'll ask you some screening questions. Just say Jim Rutt sent you. They'll let you in. Okay. Well, yeah, I think the game B concept is so important. I love that, you know, having a clear guidepost, recognizing, approaching it with empathetic humility and um, recognizing the dangers of stagnation and of utopian revolutionary thinking. I think these are really good starting points. Um, we got a lot of work to do, though. So, yeah, and it won't be easy, but it will be fun. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Jim. Have a good day. Uh, thank you, Ray. This has been a great conversation.